Hi, Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Saturday. That indeed. <laughs> um, welcome to the seventh episode of Recreation Therapy, a Canadian Perspective, and the last one for 2021. I'm Mary Doolitt, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lauren Cripps, um, who is my second guest from Ontario. A disclaimer before we get started is that I'm currently working as a recreation therapist for Fraser Health. My views are my own and not reflective of my employer. Dr. Lauren Cripps is a full-time instructor um, in the Faculty of Education at Brock University in Toronto, Ontario, and a partial load faculty at Mohawk College and Canamore College. She has a BA in TR, a master's in leisure studies, and a PhD in applied health science, focusing on child and adolescent mental health from Brock University. Lauren is also the education director for CTRA, and as you'll find out throughout the podcast, she wears many hats and is very involved in many aspects of recreation therapy, from teaching, researching, and volunteering. I have seen Lauren present in conference with Dr. Lauren, or Dr. Lauren, Dr. Colleen Hood um, in Dartmouth in 2018. Um, I think you were still working on your PhD or you just got it. And at the ATRA Symposium in 2020, which was held virtually, I find her to be very authentic and engaging as a presenter. And I'm very much looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, I actually, um, I went to Mohawk College for three years for um, advertising and communications. Oh, very cool. So I, yeah, I, uh, I teach part-time. Actually, my internship supervisor is a full-time faculty member in the uh, TR program at Mohawk College. And so she uh, recruited me to come and join them a couple of years ago. And uh, I teach here and there in the in the program at Mohawk. I also do um, clinical supervision in a neighboring program for um, students who are pursuing a certificate in uh, concurrent disorders, so a specialization postgrad certificate. And so uh, I do lots of clinical mentorship through uh, Mohawk, and I absolutely love the school. Yeah, I don't know when the the rec therapy program started there because I don't remember hearing about it. But I was well, twenty one when I went there, so right. Yeah, I, I did not yet learn about recreation therapy at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not I don't know. I don't know. I actually don't know when the uh, if Joanne Broman is listening, she's going to shudder because I don't actually know the dates of the TR program at. Mohawk either. Um, she's the program coordinator and has been uh, part of the program for years and years. She's been at Mohawk for I think about 30 years and super dedicated champion to TR. <laughs> she would probably get a kick over the fact that I have no idea when the program actually started. I just come and teach and do my thing. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good enough. Um, okay, so you have a new exciting role as editor-in-chief for the Canadian Therapeutic Recreation Journal. Um, the TRJ is a well-established American, American journal in our field. Why do you think a Canadian version is needed? Well, it's an interesting question, and I think that um, you kind of hit the nail on the head um, with this question, because the reality is that's probably something that's gone through a lot of people's minds as they 
have stumbled across our call for papers or any of the um, promotional plugs that have happened over the last several months promoting this new journal that we're creating. And uh, I'm serving as the interim editor in chief and very much looking forward to someone far more qualified than myself to take it over and run with it long term. But um, in the meantime, uh, I was part of the conceptualization team and uh, by pure happenstance ended up being asked to um, stick around and uh, serve to launch it. And uh, what's so interesting about this is that I think so often we, um, when we hear about new and upcoming journals, we immediately kind of thrust ourselves into this idea of competition, that the two journals are um, intended to compete with one another when actually we come from the same publisher. So Sagamore Venture is the publisher that backs the TRJ and has always backed the TRJ. And um, they were the ones that actually approached CTRA several years ago. It was the president of Sagamore Venture that um, approached this uh, approached CTRA because they're typically at our conferences and said, would you like to start a Canadian journal? And at the time, there just wasn't um, the manpower on our board and the um, skill sets on our board to really drive that force. And um, with COVID and us being kind of planted in our homes, no different than you creating this podcast, um, it was like, just sort of the perfect storm to move forward with uh, their request. And the, so our Canadian Journal of Rec Therapy, the CJRT, is complementary to the TRJ. So if you pull up the, uh, you know, the mission and vision of each of the journals through the Sagamore Venture website, um, one of the things that you will discover quickly is that the TRJ is very research heavy and focuses on quality research that is directly connected to TR in some capacity. They also publish a lot of conceptual papers, such as the leisure and well-being model. So from that perspective, they really are um, quite heavy on the academic side of TR. And so the Canadian Journal is in complement to that, but what we are focusing on, the, the papers that we are um, thirsty for are the papers that take these, con these conceptual theoretical ideas and translate them into practice. So when we began to explore the idea of this journal, what my um, position was in the proposal was simply that what we need in the, in the um, field are articles that teach practitioners how to take what they've learned and infuse it into practice. Because I think that's something that us educators and scholars take for granted. Those are the pieces that so often are missing from our research articles. We're so focused on um, presenting our data and illustrating the value of what we've done that we forget about that translation piece. And knowledge not translated is knowledge not acquired. And so that's really our focus for this journal is to take all of these beautiful research pieces and promote the creation or the authorship of manuscripts that tell practitioners what to do with it. 
Um, okay, I have a couple thoughts. First of all, I'm going to pull an Oprah here and say that <laughs> I love, <laughs> you know, how she repeats what people says and puts her hands up. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> that was a good first. That's perfect. So, uh, I like that you said knowledge not translated is knowledge not acquired. Love it. Good quote. Um, and then, yeah, my personal thought on the Canadian TRJ is that I was like oh that's sweet that's awesome um it'll focus on more Canadian stuff because um as with the title of this podcast I think the climate's uh different in some ways um in Canada versus the states or versus other places and it's nice um to sort of encourage more research in whatever way possible and so um yeah hopefully Hopefully you get a lot of submissions and um, it becomes as large as the American one. Yeah. And I mean, it's the, you know, the TRJ has been around for so long that, you know, to try and compete with a journal that's so well established would be a foolish thing to do in the first place. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, the competitiveness of our profession, of the profession of TR across the board is part of what has led to the disconnect across our country. And so, um, one of my roles is to really encourage people to move from this space of competition to the space of collaboration. And um, what I hope to see happen is that through uh, the CTRA backing this journal, we can in, we can create a platform for practitioners and researchers to come together because we have two very different skill sets. And myself, I happen to be a community engaged researcher. So everything that I do is about the integration of work, uh, you know, development of programs and measurement of programs with real people. But a lot of the research that takes place is not from a community perspective. And you know, we need more collaboration between the academy and the real world in order to bridge the gap that currently exists. And so my hope is that over the upcoming years, we can start to see that happening where, you know, all of our scholars who have this unique skill set in research and in writing can deliver opportunities or follow through with opportunities to mentor and collaborate with the practitioners who have the real, um, the real clear indications of where the field is at and what is needed on a practical level. I, I like what you said about competition and collaboration because I, I find that there's a lot of competition in the fields too, just like the best job, the, this recognition, the, this award. And um, I find that we, we do do better work when we collaborate and get, um, get everyone's input. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, oh, you kind of already talked about this, but um, sort of what your role has been in creating the TRJ and who else is involved in this process? Mm-hmm. So uh, this process was initially taken on um, by myself and Glenn Skimming, who is the uh, current president. At the time, he was president-elect. He's now the president of CTRA. Um, we kind of joined together. So Glenn was actually the one, um, at the time he was marketing director, he was the one that Sagamore had approached and said, hey, Glenn, what do you think about this idea? And this was, I want to say it was actually at the Dartmouth 
uh, conference because I remember Peter, the president of Segmore Venture, having his booth set up there um, on the mezzanine level. And so I want to say that's where they had this conversation, but I don't know for sure. Glenn probably told me and I probably blocked it out. But um, the uh, Glenn was kind of the one that said, hey, I'd been asked about this. Like, do you have any interest in joining me in this journey? And I thought, well, sure, why not? So he and I started having uh, regular calls, re regular video conference calls with um, with Peter Bannon from Sagamore Venture. And we kind of uh, worked together to hash out what the scope of a journal would be with um, Peter's mentorship, because really he has um, the expertise in this. Glenn and I have, you know, we're happy to support, but neither of us are particularly qualified to know uh, how journals work from the publisher's perspective and how, you know, subscriptions are found and all of that. All the business side is Peter um, and his team. But uh, we basically worked through the concepts and, uh, you know, started to think about what would make sense. And Peter had lots of ideas because it was him that initi that initiated the conversation back when. And so we kind of took his ideas and uh, brought it back to the board of directors and talked a little bit about that over a period of months. And then eventually we came up with a um, focus of the journal and then we had to hash out the actual agreement um, and what that would look like. And so all of that, you know, things don't move quickly at the board level ever. Um, we only meet monthly and it, the board is made up primarily of, the board is made up of volunteers. We do have a few employees at CTRA as well. Um, so meeting once a month and getting through the agenda is always an exciting adventure. You never know what's gonna happen when. Uh, but eventually we did have a signed uh, agreement starting, I think it was signed in February of 2021. Then we announced it. Um, as part of TR month and began the process of putting things into place, establishing, you know, the publishing guidelines, creating the website, all of these pieces. And our first call finally just closed. So now we have our interim editorial board, which is made up of uh, myself, Dr. Anne-Marie Sullivan from Memorial University, Dr. Colleen Hood from Brock University, and Dr. Sarah Moore from uh, Dalhousie University. So there's the, I serve, I'm serving as the interim editor-in-chief and uh, my three colleagues who I'm fortunate enough to also call my friends and my mentors um, will serve as the editorial board with me. We're all on the interim level. So uh, once we've launched the first issue and survived, um, our next phase will be to actually release a call for editor-in-chief and begin the process of um, finding someone who has a long-term vision for this journal, who has the experience um, in uh, the academy and in the world of um, periodicals to be able to support this journey long-term. Well, that's a good team. Uh, Dr. Sarah Moore was my teacher at Douglas College, and I actually watched her dissertation at VGH when she got her PhD. Very um, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah's a very good friend of mine, and um, we actually have a funny relationship because Sarah and I actually went to the same high school. She, oh. it, uh, I will proudly remind her she is one year older than me. Okay. 
Um, actually, Sarah's sister and I are in the same year and she was a year ahead of us. Um, but Sarah and I never met the entire, like I didn't know her in high school, despite the fact that we were at the same school all the way through high school. I never met her. Um, and then it wasn't actually until I was teaching at Brock and she came to teach sessionally at Brock that we met. And suddenly, you know, she said, oh, I'm from St. Catharines as well. And we started to talk and discovered that um, her, one of her closest lifelong friends, uh, who's also a scholar, he uh, lives in Europe, um, <laughs> he and I grew up a street apart and have known each other our entire lives. And all of a sudden the world just got so much smaller. And so Sarah and I are actually working right now on two projects together, um, collaborating on two research projects. And we have um, a previous project that was a collaborative uh, COVID project that hopefully the manuscript will be accepted in the next couple of days with the TRJ. So uh, yes, a wonderful person to be mentored and learn from, uh, though I, happily call Sarah my friend. She's also someone that I admire greatly in the field for her capacity to network and um, just her immense knowledge of research and uh, myself being primarily driven as a qualitative with some quantitative experience. Um, Sarah's uh, quantitative with some qualitative experience. So it's a really yeah. nice compliment. Yeah, she's very numbersy. She's um, yes, <laughs> she loves numbers, and I love words, and we come together and create super cool projects um, because we have two very different lenses that we look at things, and that is like the perfect illustration of how collaboration can be such a beautiful process. Yeah, and I will say that she's very generous with her time. She's very supportive and kind, and her kids are adorable. Yes. Uh, like they're little uh, philanthropists. <laughs> oh, big time. And they yeah. still are. Actually, yeah. the last couple of weeks, um, her younger son has been in her office with her when we've been meeting on these uh, project meetings. And so uh, we've been joking about how he sits under her desk as we talk and we're having to um, attempt to censor ourselves regularly on what we say because there's little ears nearby. And uh, all she... She, she just continuously, um, you know, navigates the world of being a full-time uh, professor on a tenure track stream, which is a, a difficult challenge in and of itself, while also being a parent who's just relocated kids across the country. And so she does a beautiful job of managing all of it with such poise. It's hard not to admire her. They're going to be interesting little adults. Oh, they will. <laughs> Um, so, oh, actually, Anne-Marie Sullivan is someone I want to have on the podcast because I have read research of hers and she's in Newfoundland, right? Which I haven't had anyone yes. from Newfoundland yet. Yes, she's actually oh. now the dean. Um, oh. She's a dean, an interim dean. I don't, I don't know if it's official, if she's officially the dean yet or not. I haven't, uh, I don't remember what signature I read last um, she was the previous education director for CTRA, um, and she's quite involved in the Nova Scotia TR world, or I'm sorry, the Newfoundland TR world, um, and a wonderful person to connect with. She really um, understands TR. She has a uh, quite a um, broad range of uh, experience in TR and uh, likes 
you know, she, she is a teacher at heart. Um, and she really likes to translate uh, things into the real world to provide opportunities for her students to get that hands-on learning. And so um, despite the fact that she is still, that she has transitioned into an administrative role and is at, for this year at least, not in the classroom, uh, she's still working hard to create initiatives for students that are studying TR in uh, Newfoundland and uh, definitely someone you should reach out to. Yeah, that'll be my New Year's thing. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can tell her when you hear from this person named Mary. Um, I will. I'll send her a note and say, I did a podcast and I plugged you and now they're going to want to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, small, small wreck therapy world. Very um, much. Okay, yeah. So the deadline for submissions was November 30th. Um, so what was the interest and did you get some submissions for publishing? Yeah, we actually got quite a few submissions, which was is always the nerve wracking thing. Um, I've given extensions to a couple of scholars or a couple of writers who have reached out to me. Um, we had some, of course, system issues where the uh, the new website that Sagamore launched in September, I want to say it was like September 4th of 2020 it launched, um, was not allowing people to submit. It was a bit of a nightmare because anyone that has submitted to Sagamore in the past for other journals has an account set up and it, it was a bit ugly and uh, we've worked our way through those glitches and because you don't typically find out these glitches are taking place until the day of the deadline because uh, everyone waits to the last minute to submit, right? You yeah. take as much time as you can as, as you should. So we discovered that there were hiccups. Um, actually, with Anne-Marie, uh, when I was talking with her this week, that's why we were talking. She was submitting a manuscript with a student and uh, they couldn't get it to submit and she couldn't figure out what was going on. And so we connected really briefly. Uh, I believe the issues have been resolved primarily, but because of that, we've been delayed Uh and so we have, I've got um, a couple of manuscripts that will come in over the next week or so. And then I will start to disseminate to anyone who has uh, identified interest in being a peer reviewer. So if anyone does want to join this journey um, and be a peer reviewer, what you do is you go to the Sagamore Venture website, you click on journals, then you go to the bottom of the page, you click on Canadian Journal of Rec Therapy, you create a login, and it, at the bottom of the page, after you've created the login, it'll actually allow you to identify any of the journals that you wish to be a identified as a reviewer for. And then as, as an editor on the back end, I can actually see who's identified and then I can start to um, electronically assign papers to people to uh, be able to read and give feedback on. Um, and the peer review process sort of works as though uh, we, we aim to make sure that there's always at least three readers that go through each of the papers and you identify the strengths, the, the limitations, you can give um, you know, active feedback through track changes on Word, um, and then you identify whether or not you think the paper should be published as is, published with revisions, or um, uh, rejected for publication. And then the papers get, so then we go through all the feedback, 
we sum it all up, create a summary of uh, sort of what the feedback was. It goes back to the authors and then they rewrite and they resubmit and we do it again. So it's a, um, it's a pretty cool process. And for anyone who has gone through uh, their education and heard their prof saying, you know, you must use peer reviewed resources. That's the reason why peer reviewed resources are so um, are held in such high regard is because they do go through this vetting process for people who have some content expertise. Um, does a paper ever get published as is? I feel like that's a dream. <laughs> you know what? I have to be honest. If I was going to guess, <laughs> I feel like one of the papers that Sarah just submitted to um, a journal just got accepted as is. <laughs> wow, wow. I feel like I read that and thought, oh, you're brutal. But I could be wrong. There could have been a process. It's very infrequent. And again, sometimes the feedback is just formatting based. Sometimes it's uh, to do with, um, you know, asking for a few more references to be given. If they've been limited in the amount of references that they've added throughout the text, we might say, you know, add this here, add this there. And sometimes it's the, the order. I've had papers that have come back to me um, where the reviewers felt that um, the flow of the paper would actually work better if I had changed the order in which I had my discussion. So it is infrequent for, for anything in the academy to be accept, accepted as is, um, or in, not infrequent. It is infrequent, but it's the word should have been un, uncommon. Yeah. Um, certainly an uncommon thing, not impossible. Uh, and I think we see more um, more feedback given on the social science side of things than we do on the hard science. You know, when you are publishing data, number, you know, hard numbers data that is very clear and it's a, you know, a, a, a highly quantitative study with limited discussion, I think those are the papers that typically get accepted a little bit more readily than the conceptual papers that have, um, lots of theory woven throughout them and I would be more like you I'm more on the qualitative side um mm -hmm. but I have a lot to learn about um implementing theories and using measurement tools to sort of support the findings stronger right but I mean which, I is, which isn't uncommon most yeah. people have all of the ideas in their head and the and understand the theories, they just haven't had the opportunity to actually um, develop the skills associated with that integration piece to make things, you know, to kind of synthesize um, the overall concepts in a way that um, creates a nice narrative. Yeah, I think um, I cut myself some slack, though, because I'm a bachelor's level education. So when I do go for my master's, that will definitely help, especially with the st statistical classes that you guys take. For sure. Your research methods classes um, teach you a lot and traumatize you even more in the best way possible because they force you to own your own uh, positionality and recognize what your position is within 
whatever it is that you're doing and how to work with that in a way that honors the research as something that is outside of you but also recognize what your role is within research and then it also teaches you you know how to choose what method and what makes the most sense and what is your world view and you know i always kind of laugh and think uh, when i think about the uh, methods courses that you're required to take that are non-optional you know i think the best way to explain them is that they sort of lead you to a, an identity crisis in a way that um, is both helpful and destructive at the same time but sets you up to do um, so much better work at the graduate level break you and then make you hey yeah (laughs) (laughs) um okay so i'm just gonna skip to question five because you already kind of talked about why peer-reviewed academic research in our field is important do you have anything else to add to that um i don't think so other than you know um peer-reviewed academic research it creates a foundation to say that this isn't just my idea. This is my idea and it's been vetted and collaborated with others. And so it's the highest degree of rigor that we can get. And there's in, a, in an era where you can find the answer to just about anything through a Google search and there's so much subjectivity and there's so much misinformation peer-reviewed research is um, the gold standard for making sure that the information that you are, you know, using to develop whatever it is you're doing and implement, that it's informed by the right sources and it's not a mismatch that could potentially lead to to doing harm. Mm -hmm. So I just think we, you know, we, I know myself at um in particular at the bachelor's level writing papers and working my way through i i hated having to do lit reviews and i hated having to find the papers because it's you know you have to have access to the journals and go through the library and flash forward many years i now see what the value is in that but i also need to uh recognize that there's a gap because peer-reviewed academic research in TR is extraordinarily limited. We don't have a large body. And one of the things that I think as educators, we often fall short on is teaching our students how to learn from other disciplines and how to integrate work from other disciplines into ours in a way that honors both their position and our our profession. The other piece of peer-reviewed research that's important to recognize is that not all of us will work for organizations that have access to peer-reviewed academic work. And so there becomes a gap in practice as a result because you have to have paid subscriptions and subscriptions for journals cost libraries hundreds of thousands of dollars every single year. And we often take for granted when we work for a large health authority, for example, we take for granted that we continue to have access to these journals, whereas people who work for small community organizations or potentially are self-employed, they don't have they lose access after graduation. And so, um, one of the reasons why the uh, CJRT became something that I was interested in was members of CTRA will be able to access the journal through their uh, through their 
membership. It's just part, it's built in as direct access. And so it'll at least give them over time as we develop a database uh, or of papers, it'll at least give them access to some uh, practice-based uh, evidence that they can weave into whatever it is that uh, they do in the so-called real world. Um, yeah, I was working for a nonprofit right after my graduation, and um, I wanted to work on a research study that followed up with my student study that was in the TRJ. Mm -hmm. And um, so this one's currently being reviewed for publication in the TRO journal. Mm -hmm. um, but when I first started, I was like reaching out to my friends and stuff and health authorities and like, hey, you want a, a partner in a paper with me so I can access your journal? Because I can't access the Douglas College um, library anymore. Um, yeah. It was very challenging. And then thankfully, when you do work for a health authority, you can literally send like um, keywords off and stuff like this to the library and they do the search for you and then you read it, yes. which is a very time consuming piece, but I have a whole uh, trifecta highlighter process with notes <laughs> and I do enjoy it but it's very time consuming and then to synthesize it after is um, very thoughtful and um, you need concentration you kind of talked about um, how people can access the journal if you're a CTRA member so there would be no I keep scooping you I'm sorry you know <laughs> I've been looking and I just I'm... you had told me the things you were going to ask and I think it just probably got embedded in my in my gray matter and I keep scooping you so I apologize I see how you work that's fine I'm I'm on the ball so that's good <laughs> <laughs> no no Christmas parties last night um so okay but I'm going to go back to question four because I'm not I'm not skipping that but um so, so this journal is, will be free to CTRA members. Is there a cost um, associated to like non-members? Um, I'm certain that there would be, I don't know what it is. So that would be through Sagamore. Um, I want to say that like you can buy individual issues of the TRJ if you're, if you don't have access to it, but it's a bit cost prohibitive. So I assume Sagamore will be set up with the um, Canadian Journal to do the exact same thing where people can buy um, individual issues for access. Um, but I know the next step that um, Sagamore will be working on is having the journal promoted and purchased by academic institutions as well as health authorities. So they're, I, I assume, marketing sales people will begin to reach out to various institutions that likely already subscribe to the TRJ to invite them to uh, also subscribe to the Canadian Journal of RT uh, as a complimentary uh, periodical that they can, that their, their uh, members can have access to. In terms of, uh, access beyond that I have no idea what it would look like I'm uh when you're connected to an academic institution or in my case three academic institutions you certainly take for granted uh the fact that you literally can log on to Google Scholar with your credentials and do whatever it is you need to do um and so I know so little about the how to access things when you are the majority of us who aren't connected to these institutions 
because I have both fortunately and unfortunately not ventured in that world as of yet. Maybe someday if I manage to get fired by all my academic institutions. Well, if you don't learn the history of when they were created and stuff, maybe, hey? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, just kidding. I guess um, people should just become a CTRA member and then they'll get free access, right? That is one revenue, that is one uh, route, of course. And so members such as, uh, like in BC, for example, if you're a member of BC, if you're a member of BCTRA, um, we have a joint membership agreement where you also would have access to the, um, to CTRA. So certain provinces have JMAs, which allow their members to have access both provincially and nationally. And um, I believe all of our um, board members that make up the areas across the country are working towards creating JMAs. I know for Ontario, when I was the central director, it was something that I was um, in conversation about and subsequently dropped the ball on because I moved into a different role. And uh, we have just backfilled our um, central director position. She'll be coming on for January. So uh, there's been some gaps there, but Hopefully, you know, if, if this were an ideal world, hopefully each one of our prevent, provincial associations and or provincial chapters will eventually have a JMA with CTRA. And then there, so long as you are a provincial member, you'll automatically have access to the journal. Is that Valen from Saskatoon that's going to be the central director? No, um, we have... Uh, Anne Marie, a different Anne Marie coming on. She's actually from the Quebec chapter and okay. she'll be doing Central. Nice. So Valen, uh, Valen is already on our board and attends, uh, attends meetings regularly. Uh, she's lovely. So uh, I, I don't remember what Valen's role is. Uh, Western? Well, Saskatchewan, no. so that's why I thought it was Central, but no, so uh, Central is Ontario and Quebec. Oh. So I, I want to say, I, my issue is I don't remember what everyone's actual title is. I just know who they are. I right? always you, that- when you're When you're in board meetings, you don't say, let's hear from Central, shall we? We say, let's hear from Anne. <laughs> who, who are you again? Where are you from? <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. Um, let's see, where is Val? Um, what do you want to call it? Yeah, she's another Douglas College grad that I met when I moved to Saskatoon. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I didn't realize that Valen went to uh, Douglas. Yep. That's awesome. Uh, she got her degree there. She might have done her diploma at Sas Polytech. I'm not sure. Mm, right. Okay. Um, can you speak a bit about the criteria for publication and um, where practitioners can go to submit research articles in the future? Yeah. So the criteria for publication, what we're focusing on is papers that highlight what you're doing in practice. So, uh, you know, that evidence-informed, evidence-based approach where you have some theoretical underpinning to the programs that you're creating and you're really writing about how the programs are working. So it's always nice when you can uh, present some data that uh, demonstrates effectiveness of interventions. So those pre and post assessments that 
I um, am always plugging people and encouraging people to use pre and post measures with your clients to, uh, to be able to present some values for change as a result of the interventions is super helpful uh, data, not only to uh, be able to demonstrate the value of your practice with them amongst um, you know, your, uh, your colleagues, but also to be able to demonstrate to clients why their time with you was uh, worthwhile and to uh, really start to close those gaps on clients continuing to practice the things that they're doing. The, uh, in terms of submission, you go directly to the Sagamore Venture website and you um, create an account and then you submit your paper through your account to the to the journal. So it's a pretty seamless process. And um, if I've learned anything in this role, it's how often quality practitioners are intimidated by the process of writing um, a paper. And so we have been talking I don't know where we're at in the discussion at the moment, um, but I had uh, suggested that there might be value in the upcoming conference for creating a session on uh, writing a publication. And uh, we talked about potentially having someone from Sagamore Venture come and join the conversation. I assume I would be tied to it as well and talking about the steps to writing up the work that you're doing to give sort of a um, a guiding template on how to write one of these papers. We all have the skills to write a paper. Uh, some of us, it's more of a strength than others, but we we more or less have the skills to do it. It's about sitting down and understanding that process and uh, finding the confidence to reach out to someone who has more experience to maybe partner with them. So that's where I'm really encouraging any uh, practitioner who has an interest in writing a research article to either reach out to the to CTRA or to your provincial organization and ask the whoever is the education director at the organization to connect you to the most relevant academic institution, you know, typically an academic institution that's close to you, or if they have any idea of someone in our country that is a scholar that um, has some expertise in the in the population in which you work um, and creating a, a partnership with an academic who does this for a living. Um, Full-time academics have a uh, scholarship mandate. They are required to constantly be engaged in. It's, it's built into their workload. So I know full-time faculty members at Brock, for example, have a 40-40-20 workload. 40% of their job is teaching, 40% is research, and 20% is service. And so uh, we are required to continuously uh, publish. That's what the university and the college's somewhat less college, more university. That's uh, what the mandate and the push is. And we have time allocated in our work schedules to support this process. And so um, certainly you don't have to connect with an academic in order to submit, but if you don't feel confident, uh, it's a great way to go about it. I know our past president, Carl Ings, really wants to publish some of the work that he's been doing. And so um, he and I are writing it together not that I'm in any way some kind of expert, but he seems to trust me because he's a fool. And uh, 
we're working together to uh, turn one of his previous presentations on his work with PERMA into uh, a submission. We won't get it. It's not going to be in this particular issue, but it'll hopefully go uh, into the next call. And uh, he's gaining the skills that he needs, and I'm able to um, support him in that process. You probably get this a lot, and I won't focus on it, but I, I don't know how you have the time for all the things that you do. Yeah, uh, honestly, I feel like more often than not, um, I just have so many, uh, there's so many balls floating above my head that I just end up dropping them all the time. And um, I always, I, I have a lot of mom guilt that translates into work guilt. And um, I guess the only thing I can, I can say is that when you love what you do, it drastically changes how it feels when you're doing it. And so for me, um, working with others, collaborating, contributing to research, launching a journal, all of these things are certainly time consuming. And there's been so many delays that were sometimes because of my schedule and sometimes because of um, external things that were out of my control, like the website crashing or people being on vacation that I couldn't move forward. But um, my hope throughout my journey is that um, anyone who works with me along the way values the experience and doesn't hold me uh, in uh, too... <laughs> And doesn't feel punished by the uh, the delays or the you know emails that I miss or the emails that I read on the go and forget to respond. I always tell my students if I haven't written you back in twenty four hours, please write me again. It is not that I did that I am ignoring you. It's that I probably read your email while I was driving one of my kids somewhere because oh, I have I don't say that. <laughs> Oh, I have a terrible problem with, you know, you're sitting at a train. You're okay. We have lots of trains around here and we're, you know, you, you catch a train. Um, and so you're just sitting there and you look at an email and then you put your phone down and continue driving. And then by the time you get home, you've forgotten about it. And I am the worst for that. And so um, I always tell people, if I, if you have written me and I haven't written you back, I don't ignore emails. Something has happened and I have moved into a position of having the attention span of a fruit fly. So if I forgot, I need you to tell me again. And then my students have gotten really good about it. And I always say, don't start it with a, I'm sorry for writing you again. Just say, Hey, Lauren, I'm guessing you read this and miss it. Can you, uh, see below or whatever and uh we've my students have been willing to forgive me on my utter chaos at all times it's not an admirable trait but um i'm doing the best i can <laughs> but i actually find you very um easy to connect with like even if you do miss something you get back right away and um you're quite like thoughtful like other things that we've connected with um with the ctra board um, in your replies. So I think that's like very appreciated. 
Well, thank you. I, I mean, I, I, I try to be genuine um, and I try to own my shit when I drop the ball. So I drop the ball all the time. My, uh, my son was really mad at me the other day because he couldn't get a toy at Costco. And I, I said, uh, Luca, Christmas is in, you know, a couple of weeks. We're not buying any toys today. And uh, when we got home, he decided he's five. So he's a very rational human being. And yeah. uh, he, <laughs> he, that night, I, you know, it was almost bedtime. I said, okay, time to go upstairs and brush your two feet. It's bedtime. And he stomped up the stairs and he said, you are the worst mummy ever. I said, I know. Uh, sorry, bud somebody's got to do it and then he turned he took a few more steps and he turned again he goes and you're a bad doctor too (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's pretty awesome (laughs) and heartbreaking i'm I'm sure i'm so used to taking a shit picking from my kids that it's like yeah you're probably right whatever brush your teeth (laughs) bud it's bedtime yeah this changes nothing. Continue on. <laughs> yeah, you still didn't get a toy. We're already yeah. home. Now you're not getting it at Christmas either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay, so how did you get involved with research? And can you speak about your approach? You have a little bit. Um, and how mentorship in the process supported your confidence um, in conducting research? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I have a strange, you know, history in uh, the academic world. And um, I, as I, so I was, this was my second, TR was my second career. And so when I came, when I went back to Brock, um, I started in the TR program in 2009. And um, when I returned to Brock at that time, I, I think because I was a bit older, I was married and kind of settled into my life, so to speak. Um, I created a different relationship with learning where it was almost less obligatory and more inspiring. And so, uh, you know, when I had assignments and they were always plentiful, um, I connected with them in a different way. And as I worked my way through the program, I guess I was a good writer that I never really realized. And so the feedback that I would get from my props was, you know, we should talk about publishing this. And, you know, we always say, at least at Brock, we say to students, you know, to get a 90 on a paper means it's of publishable quality. So don't set your standards that in early years of your degree, you're going to be writing publishable work because it's just not realistic, but it's something to, to work towards. And so um, I just continuously plugged away on my assignments and um, the opportunities to uh, pursue graduate studies kind of came to me. Um, Colleen, uh, Colleen Hood and Susie Lane taught, co-taught the capstone course at Brock when I was um, in that the fourth year capstone course. And uh, both of them had said I was a, a doing an individual thesis at the time because I didn't want to have to work with others. <laughs> I wanted to just do it on my own and not have the obligation of year-long group work because I worked full-time uh, as well as being a student. So to th- the thought of having to do any kind of work with other students um, 
for an entire year just felt like it would be, I would be frustrating for them more than anything because my schedule was so wonky. So I decided to do an individual thesis and I just fell in love with the process of research. Um, And from that point on, it was sort of, I kind of just kept going because I was proving to myself something that, you know, I could do good. I could do great work. I, there wasn't really a conscious process so much as I just really enjoyed learning. And uh, I ended up getting funded. I, I got a um, external scholarship in my master's and that kind of boosted my confidence even further. And from there, it just, one thing led to a net to the next. I, I was super mindful in the entire experience where I really focused on what I was doing in the moment more so than the long term. And I just enjoyed the process of learning. Um, in terms of mentorship, um, I had the pleasure and privilege of being mentored by one of the great TR scholars. And um, I, you know, lots of people have criticized my trifecta education. I have three degrees from the same institution. But for me, I was fortunate enough to find my champion and Colleen and I are still friends we will forever be friends um and learning with her and from her has been the greatest privilege of my life next to parenting um because she just she's so human in her approach she's obnoxiously intelligent and I tell her that regularly you know, her, her firing on one piston is me firing on 10. Um, and just the way she allowed me to let life happen in the midst of learning is how I got to the end. You know, I had, I had my son in the uh, third year of my PhD and she didn't let motherhood sh- overshadow the process of learning and she also didn't chastise me when I wasn't as productive as I could have been and she just she let the process be mine she let the ideas be mine she never tried to bring me into her program of research and turn me into her she insisted that I find my own way of thinking and although some of the work that we do is complementary to each other you know I branched out and went to child and adolescent mental health and now we're kind of this force to be reckoned with because she has this immense expertise in adults and I have an immense expertise in child and adolescent and we come together and um, just work well together. I think if there's one thing that I've learned and one thing that I recommend to anyone who wants to go on to graduate studies or wants to you know, pursue um, research of any kind, it's to find your champion because when you find a mentor that that sees you that feels you and that gets you the process of learning and the struggles associated with it just become so much more survivable i want that <laughs> um so that's kind of also, yeah, you're doing it again, and that's totally fine. <laughs> what advice I'm do you sorry. have for... No, that's totally fine. At least I, I'm listening to what you're saying, so that's good. Um, so what advice can you give to practitioners interested in research? So finding a mentor, and then if there's anything else, but also um, 
for people who don't feel that they have the skills or time to pursue it, what advice would you give people? Partnership, collaboration, the willingness to be honest and authentic in your partnership of what is and is not realistic um, is just so important. You know, I am the queen of taking on a million things, but I try to be transparent and say, you know, I only have so much time. And so it might take me a little bit longer. So our goal, we might have to have a, a more distal goal for the final product, but that doesn't mean that it isn't going to be valuable. It just means it's going to take us a little bit longer because we can only put so much into it. Um, but, you know, the beauty of the projects that I've been working on uh, this past year have been with um, both projects that were collaborative amongst multiple um researchers so you know one project i was on there was eight of us working together and you know many hands makes lighter work it's it does allow um a complementary approach to research it also allows uh, multiple schools of thought and you you edit each other's work and you collaborate with each other to hash out what you think is the greatest contribution and so you don't have to have the skills to write your first paper. You have to have the desire to learn when you go to write your first paper. Um, you don't, anyone who thinks that going into your first research project, you should already be an expert has an unrealistic approach. It's about learning. And if you work in an institution where uh, like a larger institution that does have access to periodicals, you know, um, like a health authority, you probably also have internal people who are research experts. So for example, um, some of the work that I've done at a local hospital in Hamilton, some of the work I've supported, um, they have PhDs who are cross appointed between their hospital and universities that are there to support practitioners in doing research and bring that expertise that is necessary to guide a project while the practitioners are bringing the, um, you know, the real world focus that is so needed in order to make projects meaningful. So how do eight people collaborate? Like, are you able to have meetings or is it mostly just through emails? No, we have a weekly meeting. Wow. Thank God for Zoom. And, you know, not everyone is there every single time because we all have schedules. But for the most part, you know, we hash out a time that works for everyone. Um, you know, you doodle polls and things like that. You set aside. So for the COVID project um, that Heather Bright took the, uh, the, the lead on, she's a scholar from the U.S., um, she was the primary author on the lit review and then I wrote part of the methods and then uh, you know did some of that work so you kind of break it you break it up this was an actual research project so in terms of data collection um, the PI did all of the data collection and dissemination and there I did some of the analysis and then somebody else does the writing and then two people are the editors and it be, just becomes a less labor intensive process. And the nice part is every single person actually reviewed the manuscript and gave feedback. Changes were made before it was even submitted. So it's peer reviewed before it's even peer reviewed, which is kind of mm -hmm. cool. 
right? Um, but basically what all we did was do a doodle poll and find a common time that every person could etch into their calendar permanently. And we met every single week um, as initially. And then, you know, when we were pending ethics, we canceled the meetings for several weeks. And then um, every so often there would just be a group response from the PI saying, you know, hey, PI is the principal um, investigator. And, yeah, thank you. Uh, so Susan would just send in a note saying, still waiting on ethics, just wanted to let you know. So we just stayed in a holding pattern. And it was a nice, a nice way to work. And uh, Sarah and I on the project we're doing um, right now with uh, her doctoral student and a past student, uh, we're using the same approach. It's the four of us and we meet every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, which is um, a bit later for them. Sometimes we have to shift the time around a little bit because other things happen, but we meet every single Tuesday and sometimes it's, you know, five minutes on Microsoft Teams to say nothing new. Okay, great. Everyone's good. And other times it's an hour hashing out what the focus of the study is and, you know, trying to make sense of the, the research questions and all of that. So um, technology really drives collaboration and you don't need to be in the same country in order to work together. I like that. I feel like my favorite part of research, like I like pieces of it, um, except for writing out the methodology, honestly. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I like coming up with the, the questions and, and disseminating the information. Yeah, well, you know, the, the question is what drives the value of research. But I always, like my approach is always to, when we're taking, when we're conceptualizing a research project, start with the end in mind. What is it that you want to contribute as a result of this research? What do you want to accomplish? You know, what does the publication look like? Or what does the program look like that you want to develop? What is it that you, what is the purpose of this research? And when you have a clear cut purpose and you understand what that distal goal is, then putting the pieces in place, it just creates more continuity throughout the project because you know that everything leads to that end. Right. So it's the same with creating a program. You know, one of the key things that Colleen taught me back in my undergrad when she was, you know, teaching us how to create interventions for clients was start with the end in mind. What is your distal goal? And then work backwards. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I do see the value, especially when I was going to school about um, evaluations and programs and outcomes and that sort of um, contribution to the field. But I think my stream is more um, the bigger picture thing. So the regulations, the standardization, like mm -hmm. the, impact, the impact of titles. Um, yeah, so a bit different, but there are definitely people doing similar work that I've read. Yes, yeah. And I want to acknowledge that we are past an hour in and thank you for your time. I knew this would be a longer discussion. That's why I didn't put us <laughs> any questions. <laughs> So um, you just let me know if we need to wrap it up or whatever. Or if your dad comes in. Um, yeah. yeah, if my dad comes in out of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, boy. Having okay. seen your parents in your house is just the best thing ever. 
It could be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So from watching your keynote speech on LinkedIn from last year's CTRA virtual conference. Yeah. You kind of talked about this a bit. I know you faced um, some challenges in your post-secondary education up until you found recreation therapy. And I'm sure with that, it wasn't always smooth sailing either for anyone. Um, and now you are faculty at Brock University. Um, can you speak a little bit about the role positive mentorship played in the trajectory and how it shaped your approach to supporting students in their learning? Mm -hmm. Really good question. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely took the scenic route here. And the scenic route taught me many, many, many lessons, most of which were humbling. And the reality is, you know, for me, learning is about the connection that we create to what it is that we're learning. It's about the connection we create to the people that we share spaces, both virtually and face-to-face -face with. And it's about the connection that we have to ourselves. And, you know, we spend so much time emphasizing performance in education but I value learning over performance and I value process over content. And it's something that I preach in my classroom regularly, that it's something that I focus on as a practitioner when I have the privilege of getting back into treatment spaces and working with real people. And, you know, for me, I wouldn't have ever seen myself had I not had a mentor that was willing to join me on a journey of self-discovery in a way that honored my strengths and capacities and never highlighted my limitations. Um, I'm a strengths-based educator. I promote strengths-based classrooms. I, you know, I watched a keynote the other day. I, I actually showed the keynote to my students because I now teach in the Faculty of Education um, at Brock, but I teach rec therapy at um, Candidor and Mohawk. And the reason, it's so interesting. I'm all over the place with this one. Um, I was on the phone with Colleen. No, it was a Teams call actually. Because I'm teaching a graduate course for the first time ever. I'm now teaching in the Masters of Education program. And I feel so small conceptualizing this course. And I feel inadequate as an instructor, despite the fact that I know I have the credentials. It's just this, another one of those moments where it's like, holy shit how did I get here? I went from being a university dropout on academic probation to a PhD that's now teaching grad studies within the first two years of her career. Like, how did that happen? And I don't have an answer for how it did other than I've created authentic relationships with and allowed people to see me and work with me. And I've cared and nurtured those connections and this semester I'm teaching six courses which was insane it was <laughs> the dumbest thing I could have taken on um, but it, it actually wasn't because I was so hungry for work that I decided I needed to do it it was more that opportunities I'd already had were repeating themselves and then new opportunities came along and I couldn't abandon what I'd already said yes to and I couldn't turn down what came along unexpectedly. And so I ended up with this massive teaching load, which has forced me to refine how I approach teaching and forced me to spend every day in front of my computer 
um, and become more efficient. And I've loved it and hated it at the same time because it's just a huge, a, a huge teaching load to have in terms, mostly in terms of grading. But um, when I was uh, talking with Colleen about the, uh, you know, creating a grad course and and what that means and how we connect to our students. Um, we really, I was telling her about this, this talk that I had shown my students and what the scholar says, actually, she wasn't a scholar. She was, a, she was a um, elementary school educator with a wealth of experience and what she says to the audience is she tells the story of teaching um, kids who were not particularly well versed in you know, they didn't have well developed academic skills and she had given a quiz and the student got two out of 20. And so she wrote at the top of the paper, plus two with a smiley face. And the student came up to her and said, Miss Pearson, is this an F? And she said, actually, yes, it is. And he said, then why did you put a smiley face? And her response was, because you're on the road. And she went on, she goes on to tell her audience that minus 18 sucks the life out of you. Mm -hmm. But plus two says you're not all bad. That is how I teach. I don't give a, I don't give plus twos. I'm still stuck in this tension of the academic world, the, you know, the institutional approach to education that says you must assign a numerical value to the things that your students do. Mm -hmm. But my new, new, my numerical values are not necessarily a product of what they're doing so much as the, the forced process of this or the forced system. Mm -hmm. And it's a tension that I struggle with with my students. And when I transitioned into the faculty of ed, Colleen Aspie, if I thought I could stay there forever or she's in the, she's retiring, she has one year left. And so um, she said, will you apply to the TR position? Will you apply to my job when they post it? I said, I don't know. I, I can't see myself not applying, mm -hmm. but I also can see myself staying here with educators forever. And I'm not a, I'm a, I'm a instructor, but I'm not a, I'm not a 10, 10 year track faculty member. So I could have no teaching next year. It's hard to say, mm -hmm. but right now what I'm teaching is how to, I have the opportunity to teach educators about strengths-based education, to teach educators about creating mental health aware classrooms. And for me, it's the opportunity to create the possibility that future generations could exist in a space that is less that is less concerned about performance and more concerned about learning that teaches. I have the opportunity to teach educators that process matters more than product that you, sometimes you have to abandon what you're trying to deliver and join young people on their journey of self-discovery 
in order to allow them to grow. And that's exactly what my educators did for me. And I think the reason it happened was because they were helping professionals because I landed, it wasn't because TR is, you know, the be all and end all for me. It's because the people I worked with, the people that mentored me were willing to join me on a journey of self discovery and were willing to allow me to experience what it feels like to do things right instead of highlighting everything I did wrong. Mm -hmm. And when you feel good about the contributions you're making, you no longer are fixated on perfectionism. You no longer are trying to be someone in the future. You're embracing who you already are. And that is what positive mentorship can do for people. It can allow them to grab onto the things that they're good at so long as their mentor understands that. And I was fortunate enough to have that opportunity and I am absolutely determined to continue to forge a career that allows me to pay that same respect forward to other learners because those are the moments that will change lives forever. It's not about whether or not you can get 100% on an assignment. It's about whether or not when you did that assignment, you connected to it and it changed you viscerally. Mm -hmm. Long-winded explanation that was very indirect. Sorry. Uh, No, I liked all of it. And (laughs) it made me think um, a couple of weeks ago, because I work in mental health, substance use and community in Burnaby. and. Yeah, rehab recovery. And I actually just started working with this population in July, and I love it. Um, And it's taught me a lot. Um, And I was doing an initial with a client, and we fill out some, you know, standardized forms or whatever. And it it typically helps them see what their barriers are and what they want to get out of working with rec therapy. And um, this gentleman, like, filled out a lot, a lot of check marks, a lot of barriers, and a lot of goals. And he, he looks at it and he's like, I have a lot of work to do or like, I'm not doing well, something negative about himself. Right. And I was like, actually, when I look at that, I see that there's a lot of opportunity for education and learning and trying a lot of things. And, you know, we can do a lot of good work together. And I think just having, yeah, that sort of approach like you do with your students um, makes people more open, right. And less Mm -hmm. like punitive, less hard on yourself and more like, oh, okay, Um, rather than like, oh my gosh, I have so much I need to fix and get better at, because like, I never got the best grades, but I can tell you I was probably the hardest working student. (laughs) I made the study notes for everyone in my class, and I had study groups, and people got A's off of my study notes, but I didn't (laughs) always. You just can't, like some people just can't, Um, even though they can apply the knowledge to their work and do good things, um, it just doesn't always reflect on papers or tests. Yeah, there, there's gaps and, you know, there's, there's a whole body of literature that talks about um, the fact that we learn more through, our, through failures and mistakes than we ever learn through successes because what happens is the brain hardwires itself to remember the mistakes that you made so you don't make it again. And so there's some argument to be made that the, the student who is the top scholar in the class hasn't potentially been the one that's learned the most. It's more so that they have learned how to respond in a way that gets them the grades that they need. But 
the student who um, is highly engaged but doesn't necessarily perform at the same level isn't necessarily a subpar student. They could potentially have learned even more than the student who got the best grades. And so when we only value performance, I think there's a whole group within our population that we uh, lose connection with. And so um, I certainly struggle. I mean, if it were up to me, all of my courses would be satisfactory, unsatisfactory. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be assigning numbers. Um, and, and the unsatisfactory isn't even how I would language it. Um, like I would probably language it as satisfactory or keep, let's keep, keep let's keep working. Let's keep working together. Yeah. That's um, nice. or, you know, almost there or, you know what I mean? Like there's just, I wish we, I wish we didn't have to assign numerical values to, um, academic performance because those numbers they're such whole values that change the way students feel about themselves. And yeah, frankly, the amount of work that we have as students, the amount of work you can't give a hundred percent on every single thing that you do. And so that shitty grade can have such a detrimental impact on your sense of self and your capacity to engage moving forward. It's so discouraging. I just, I wish there were more institutions that could begin to recognize the shift in pedagogy and why strengths-based educating matters so much. Two thoughts there. Um, so I, I did a project when I was at Douglas College. I'm one of the faculty. And, and I know I went above and beyond. Like I had a poster board. I had a plate of cookies, a plate of apples. It was like um, experimental. Plus it was giving information. Um, and, and I said to my, my professor, I was like, because sometimes I challenge things. <laughs> and uh, I just, sometimes I do that. People know that about me. Um, so I just kind of said, like, how does someone like, I can't remember the language, but how does someone not get 100%? Like when you've like went way beyond what was asked for this minor project. Um, but meanwhile, I know I won't get 100 because it seems like you can never give 100%. Like that's how it seems that you can never get 100% on projects no matter what mm -hmm. you do. And, and he definitely thought about it. And he's like, hmm, you know, like that made him think of it. Um, but the other thing is... Um, I think you should do a pilot project in one of your schools about this and see what the, out the learning outcomes are for students. I know I want to so bad. I want okay. to begin to explore the different, like, yeah, the interesting, the really interesting thing is, is that um, pedagogical research is, uh, it's not held at very high regard in the academy. Like education-based research is, is hot, and sexy amongst the faculty of education people but then beyond that it's like you know people don't there's uh teaching in the academy are almost dichotomous with one another it's like there's this whole group of educators at the post-secondary level that love to teach and believe in the value of teaching and then there's this whole other pod that believe or at least kind of, you know, subliminally suggest that teaching gets in the way of the research that we're doing. And I think part of what has happened is that 
the way institutions are funded has changed dramatically uh, and research is how funds come into the university. And so teaching is not something that is, you know, necessarily privileged in uh, the academic world and that causes issues. The other piece of it is that um, students don't typically don't aren't typically aware of is that uh, post-secondary educators are not trained in teaching. They're content experts. They're not process experts. So, you know, they come, they're hired into the university because of the, the work that they do outside of the classroom. And teaching evaluations matter in the process, but there are so many post-secondary educators that have, have god-awful teaching evaluations and a career long history of god-awful teaching evaluations but have a massive program of research and no one ever questions their value within an academic institution and so that gap is you know an illustration of the fact that the academy values research over teaching over you know research over pedagogy and it drives me crazy um I decided in my journey in the last couple of years of my PhD that I was going to become uh, a good educator. And so I took a whole bunch of additional certificates in post-secondary education to learn the process of, to make sure that my learning outcomes and my course descriptions were synchronous with each other, to make sure that the values that I embodied in my classroom were representative of the learning that I wanted my students to achieve. And that continuity kind of um, keeps me on a, a clear pathway in supporting the success of my students. It's not to say that all of my students are successful. I can't force you to learn. I can't force you to meet the learning outcomes. But what I can do is sit in the trenches with you when the course isn't working for you and try and help you learn something as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And it's like stages of change and like, is this, you know, just because you're on this path right now doesn't mean it's the path for you. Exactly. Um, yeah, I definitely feel like our personal hardships um, and you can tell in your teaching, you know, from what you've experienced as a student to how it impacts how you teach. And I mean, my own personal um, history with the medical system and um, how I practice as a rec therapist definitely um, leads to better client outcomes, I feel. So even though, yeah, I think hardships lead to better, better futures, like better ways of doing things. And you can see that. I think, I think we all ultimately have a decision to make. I think there is a huge way, there is a, there's a camp of people who believe that this is how they were tortured. So this is how they will torture. Oh. And then there's a camp in terms of education. Okay. Right. Like this is the way. Well, yeah. Yeah. This is how, this is how, this is the journey I had to go through. So now you have to go through it. Whereas for me, it's like all the pieces that didn't work for me inform why I'm going to do it differently. And so it's like the diff it's fighting against the intergenerational transfer of trauma in education, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. If you've experienced shame, you either become a shamer or you speak out against it. And not everyone even has the capacity to recognize the shame that they've experienced. And so that reflexivity piece is something that becomes a big part of my pedagogical practices of 
allowing students to explore the shame that they've experienced in the classroom and how that has impacted them. We do lots of activities where I say, like, I want you to think about when you learned X, what was one thing that, you know, what worked for you? What did a really great teacher look like? What did they embody? And then I want you to think about the worst teacher you had and what were the things that they did that make you think that way? Mm -hmm. and really compare and contrast. So what happened in this bubble and what was happening in this bubble? What was the impact on you? And it's allowing students to connect to the shame and blame and belittling that they've experienced and then taking it a step further and having them to reflect on, so who do you want to be and why? Lauren, I want you to be my teacher because I feel like it would also be therapy, um, but I'm not moving <laughs> back to Ontario again, so. <laughs> Don't leave BC, it's too beautiful. Uh, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> okay, so you are also the education director for CTRA. Can you speak about your role, um, why you got involved, and how you're supporting the creation of CEU opportunities for members? So remember, we talked about the ball dropping thing. Did you drop <laughs> the ball the on your directorship? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, CEUs is something that I sucked the big one on. Um, it's interesting because uh, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine. And uh, she said, well, wouldn't you be in charge of the conference because of this? And I was like, I didn't even get asked to be on the conference planning committee. I don't even know what's <laughs> happening with the conference. I'm just the education director. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of that is that because I'm uh, chairing the uh, standards of practice changes that are coming up, um, I've taken the lead in reauthoring the standards of practice. And with the journal, I think the uh, the board is just aware that my projects are quite cumbersome. And so I'm not part of the conference uh, planning That's, committee this year. Yeah. Um, because there's other things happening. So within my role, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a broad role, but my primary focus right now has been the standards of practice changes. So our standards of practice were last authored in 2009 and uh, they're pretty outdated. And so uh I adopted this process. I, I was gifted this process for Anne, from Anne-Marie, who started the process in 2020. And uh, we now have a document that's uh, ready to be vetted and has gone out to uh, a few different groupings of people. And now uh, we have a survey tool that will go out hopefully next week, if I can get it out there um, next week where we have a group of practitioners, Mary included, uh, as well as some educators who are going to give us feedback on the changes that we've made and the most significant change that I'm proposing um, that has promoted the loss of some, that has promoted some TR hatred I'm certain of, um, is that I believe we need to differentiate between a degree and a diploma. And so what I'm proposing. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's lots of people that think it's wonderful. And there's lots of people that are super pissed that I'm, that I believe that this needs to happen. However, what we know from, I've been working with a political consultant for almost a year in understanding the process of regulation and how regulation actually takes place. And, um, you know, when you do an environmental scan of TR, there's so much inconsistency across our nation that regulation, we're just not there yet. 
and we're not there yet because we haven't allowed ourselves to be there. And, you know, standardization of practice is one of the key factors in regulations and uh, standardization in practice starts with education. If we cannot clean things up and say, this is the clear scope for a rec therapist and this is what an associate does and recognize the difference between the two, we're never going to move forward in regulation because you cannot, it, the government will not ever agree to that much of a gap in qualification from the educational, from an educational perspective. If we are not able to say the degree holder does X, Y, and Z and the diploma holder does X, Y, and Z, if we cannot illustrate a very clear plan for our profession, no government is going to endorse uh, regulation within any province. And so cleaning up these standards is step one of um, CTRA's initiative to support the provinces that have come forward in saying they want to they want to pursue regulation so that's been my monster um and i joke and say you know i started off in this role with having lots of fans and i think i'm gonna um probably stay in the role for a couple of years because these projects are a bit longitudinal and uh i'm pretty sure i won't have any friends left when i'm done but uh oh i'll be friends with you <laughs> Okay, perfect. Best There's a, I, I'm pissing off a lot of people, but uh, I'm don't okay with it. it. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't understand people who don't want to move the profession forward and don't want what's best for the profession. Um, I think that's been a big struggle for us moving forward. And I don't think it's about looking down on other people or thinking they're not qualified or whatever, because I can tell you that I've worked with diploma graduates who have been in the field for a long time and they're practicing better than some recent graduates, right, with how they practice. But yep. moving forward, um, yeah, we, you have to. Like, how, if you want to be compared to OT and PT and you want that same level of respect, meanwhile, you're doing no research, you know, there's no <laughs> standards of practice that are like, hardwired um how can you ever have that you're just wishing for it and complaining about it oh I, that was pretty harsh but um <laughs> that's but it's, of, it, yeah it's true we're we are allied health professionals next to professions that are master's level entry to practice and we're saying that a that a diploma is equivalent to what we do and the, and then we're asking for respect it's incongruent mm -hmm. And I don't, they, most provinces, um, like, I think, well, the provinces, you know, there's some provinces that I'm familiar with, but like BC and Alberta and that, um, especially Alberta with the, their progression that they recently announced, I don't think, um, especially in a health authority or whatever, diplomas and degrees are seen as different and valued as different. But yeah, across the board, across the country, there's, it's a mess. Yeah, and I think what we see is that the um, provinces where there's a heavy load of diploma programs, uh, those are the provinces that are going to push back because those educators uh, are impacted by this change significantly. And I respect that. I understand. I teach at both the degree and the diploma level, so I'm not disconnected from it. 
but this isn't about creating a culture of scarcity and it's it's not about saying a diploma holder isn't enough it's about saying a, a diploma holder has these skill sets and a degree holder has these skill sets and they're not synonymous with one another and we just need to differentiate you know uh, to we changed the language recently it was originally rec therapy rec therapist and rec therapy assistant and now we've changed it to from rec therapy to rec therapy associate and the reason we went with the associate um, that's what nstra has done and when i was able to connect with someone from nstra and talk about the language what is the language of associate can you tell me more about that and what they said was the scope of practice of some of a diploma holder is greater than a PT assistant or an OT assistant. It's, they do more than what the role of an assistant from other organizations um, would, or from other disciplines would do. And so for us, we went with associate be, because it was more respect, it was broader and mm -hmm. it was respectful of the fact that they do have a whole bunch of skill sets but they are not they haven't done the um they haven't completed a degree that allows them to as assume entry to practice with a standardized credential so um they can they can practice as an associate but they are not a therapist at that mm -hmm. point and you know the way i probably botched the explanation significantly but that explanation to me of because they're more than an assistant it was like yeah that makes a lot of sense and the fact of the matter is if I've learned anything it's that language matters in creating safe cultures mm -hmm. and so um, I, I embraced that right away and have gone all the way through the document and made those changes because I do believe that associate is a better term than assistant but the only pushback I will give, because um, I don't know, I like assistant, but I see, I can see that like, because they can create programs and stuff like this. Um, but um, I can, I guess I can see pushback being if um, all of membership didn't have feedback on that, that they might not be as accepting of that term. Because mm -hmm. people do go with assistant. Yes. And um it's a it actually says assistant slash associate associate and in phase two that's one of the things we're going to ask for feedback on awesome right i i picked assistant because i thought it made the most sense and because mm -hmm. it was representative and reflective of other allied health professions yeah. however i also recognize that um there there will be provinces that say well no assistant is what we use here and so mm -hmm. um one of the questions is assistant associate or both right like should we how should we term this and in us because our standards of practice document is a guiding document for other provinces to use if we mm -hmm. if we do it as assistant or associate slash assistant um then you have the flexibility to decide which of which of them but even you know the whole other conversation is we have provinces that would never even use rec therapists. They use rec, ther they use, you know, activity aid and all these other terms. And like, that is just a whole other grouping of chaos that is going to be down the road things, something that we can begin to explore and, um, 
help to clean up because that's another it's another issue uh, um, that affects our profession significantly. I'm glad you're working on this. And I think you would be interested to read um, the research article I worked on with um, Dr. Tristan Hopper and Rochelle Soldier, because um, it's all about this. And um, I think it's interesting that, yeah, you're sort of pursuing regulations with that. I actually agree with um, this uh, stream about um, the standardizations of language and stuff like this, because I find that most places are pursue- pursuing regulations um, mainly on risk of harm. Um, yes. But because we're not regulated, you know, because we don't have documentation really, because where where is this risk of harm being documented who's calling out people really and you know like it's not going to be a large body to support regulation so I think this is a nice route as well yeah and uh you know part of this becomes uh our first step is to become self-regulated before you can become provincially regulated so, you know, we're setting the framework for these are our guidelines and now we begin self-regulation. And, you know, the thing is, when you apply for regulation in any province, because regulation is pr- typically provincial, it can be, you can have law written at the federal level, but it's because we are healthcare based, um, federal, like the, the, um, the healthcare act there is not a lot at the federal level that actually stip- that actually um, provides guidance for each of the provinces. So it does need to be something that uh, it makes more sense for it to be written and responded to at the federal at the provincial level. But um, you know when we when you appeal to the to a group of politicians to endorse the authorship of legislation that allows you to establish a college if you do not have a very clear set of guidelines that Mm -hmm. currently that illustrate your current state for the induction of a college you are giving authorship to the government that are not informed on anything that we do no that is a license for disaster And then I think um, you guys just need to, as a board, think of like a reporting system for sort of out of scope postings, because you'll see the postings, right? Um, And sort of how that's going to be handled or managed. And then also like start being more, um, uh, I don't know, like let people know more about where risk of harm can be sort of, because I know it can go to NCTRC, right? Um, but how many people are actually going to call someone out on NCT to NCTRC really right because we're Canadians we're very nice um, <laughs> about like risk of harm type stuff right yeah um, for so sure what could CTRA's role be in that I will say that I did get you guys a webinar for CTRA in February Power Hockey Canada uh, glad awesome. connected with them for therapeutic recreation month recreation mm-hmm. therapy month yeah so there you go that's awesome uh, we do have one webinar. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, you did God. answer quite a few of the questions. So unless you have something more to say, I can move on to, yeah, you kind of already spoke about how members can have input in, and contribute during the second phase. And I so much appreciate that you're doing that. And 
And then I appreciate that you challenged me on it to say, well, (laughs) hang on, there's, you know, you can have these formed groups because I went from provincial provinces asking them for feedback to having them nominate people to join phase two. And then you kind of said, well, hang on a second, like we're still cherry picking from a unique group. And I was like, holy shit, we are. Like I was criticizing the process and I wasn't even recognizing that I was still guilty of the same thing. And so I actually really appreciated your, um, I really appreciated your feedback to say like, you need a, you need a bigger sample. So it's like, okay. And some of that was trying to limit my sample size because I'm in a volunteer position. Totally. And dealing with all this data, I'm the one that has to do it. But at the same time, it's like, no, it matters too much. Yeah. So, you know, that, you know, it's, it's delaying how long it's taking. Yeah. But I think the delay is worth the, uh, um, is worth it for a more valued outcome. Cause I think if people have the opportunity to give feedback, um, if they choose not to, um, then that's their choice, but they can't then say, I don't agree with this. It's like, Hey, you had your chance to give feedback. You didn't give feedback. And you know, that's how this works. Um, it's like how my husband bitches about the government, but doesn't vote. No, you called him out on that. <laughs> oh, of course I did. He's so proud of himself. Oh boy. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's using his right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, then you, bitches about, you know, I hate so-and-so and I, they do this and it's so stupid. I'm like, you don't vote, you don't talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? At work, and I've had some meetings with the CTRA board, maybe you've heard or not. I do, um, I do challenge things a lot. Um, and I understand that I'm not really in a role where I'm volunteering because I'm very selective about where I volunteer and how I spend my time because um, I don't want to burn out. Um, but I always, I always hope that I try to be respectful and to give suggestions and not just complain um, mm-hmm. about what's going well, on. Well, I, I found your suggestion very helpful. And um, you know what? Sometimes you, you have to be willing to take the risk that someone won't like you. Yeah. To speak for what matters. And, you know, I found it very helpful. Yeah, I don't know where I found this um, confidence to just say what I think. In school, school, I I have been called a blurter outer, um, but I think I have matured in my approach. (laughs) Right? And that's what it is. There's nothing wrong with calling people out. It's understanding how to do so in a way that's respectful of everyone involved. And people who can't handle feedback, it's, it's not generally about the feedback that you're giving. It's generally about the things that are broken inside of them and and we all have work to do and only some of us will ever actually admit it yeah some of my friends in the field they're always like oh mary be careful what you say and i'm like no because i think they're i'm like you haven't actually heard me the way that i say it like it's you know yeah anyways okay so i think we can move on to the last question okay um where do you see the profession in 10 years and what role does academic research and standards of practice play in the progression? Well, I think that um, academic research continues to be something that's important for all allied health professions, all health professions, all, I mean, evidence, I promote evidence-informed practice uh, more so than evidence-based. And the difference between the two is that evidence-based is, um, 
you know, very strict and doesn't allow for um, some, you know, if you take an evidence-based program that's been measured in a particular population and you plunk it into a new population, it's no longer evidence-based. That's how that works because it's only been measured with one particular population. And for some reason, people lose that. Um, so evidence-informed practice is about taking frameworks that are evidence-based and infusing them into new environments, infusing them with new populations, infusing them with change, and continuing to measure. Um, it allows space for client input, and it also allows space uh, for practitioner expertise. And I think that beautiful triad of research, uh, you know, research, client input, and practitioner expertise is the the goal should be the gold standard for practice, because if we are going to market ourselves as um, client centered, evidence based programming is not client centered. It's it doesn't allow voice for your client input and doesn't allow changes to be made. And so that's why I promote it, because I do believe in um, client centered care. In terms of where we're going to be in 10 years, well, if we can't come together with the standards of practice BS, we're going to be in the exact same place. The conversation on regulation has been taking place for 25 plus years, and we've gotten nowhere because everyone is so busy competing that they forget to collaborate. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the call is for us to park our egos at the door and recognize if we do not come together and agree on the basics within our profession of what a degree holder is, what a diploma holder is, what the titles should be, all of these things that have made for a messy trajectory, um, um, a messy natural national stance or natural national position, we're going to be in the same place having these same conversations, bitching at every conference about being unregulated and the impact that has on moving up in health authorities to management positions and all of that stuff. I myself am uh, appointed with the Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers for that exact reason. I'm not a social worker, but regulation for what I do matters. And I can tell you, I would love to be able to um, be someone that helps to support us moving forward with becoming a more standardized, a more standardized profession so that provincially we can clean things up um, in the ways that make sense for each province. Because what the culture and the environment looks like in Ontario is the same as BC and isn't the same as Nova Scotia or Quebec or Yukon. It's, you know, there are some differentiating factors between each of our provinces. We have 13 different provincial insurance plans for coverage of healthcare. And, you know, looking at it even systemically across healthcare, recognizing the individual nature of each province speaks to why we need to have our standards of practice cleaned up at the national level so that there can be provincial response to it. Being a member of the national board, you know, CTRA, I can't, I can represent um, the, the larger scope of our profession, but I certainly can't re represent what happens in every single province. And so my goal in this journey 
is to provide a framework for provinces to respond to in a way that makes sense for them. I hope to God in 10 years we're regulated, but I'm also fearful based on what I've experienced in this role over the last six months that we won't ever get there because we just can't get along. And how incredibly unfortunate for future generations, for clients, for educators, for everyone involved, because TR does make a difference and we need to find ways to be able to standardize our practice and create more rigor so that when we do enter key conversations, we aren't being dismissed. But where we're going to be, I don't know. I can say where I hope. I just don't know that it'll be exactly, that it'll be, that it'll be an accurate re reflection because I have been both privileged and disadvantaged to be leading this journey on behalf of CTRA and the amount of negative feedback that I've gotten and the amount of pushback and um, cattiness that has taken place is really disheartening. So there you go. Well, I actually wanted you to say something like positive and motivational, like we're just <laughs> gonna, but I mean, <laughs> you can tell the truth. That's fine. I, I wrote down quite a few thoughts. So I'm just going to say some things. Um, I often say that we're an inclusive profession, but we're too inclusive, you know, like yeah. let everyone in every role, do everything. Um, and then also like, I've also been at conferences where I've heard people complain about, you know, we've been looking for regulation for this long or whatever. And I just think like, and I don't know if I've actually said it out loud to people who say this stuff, but like, what has your role been in moving this forward? What have you actually done? You know, like we can't just sit back and just hope that someone else is going to do it. So yeah, I'd be happy to help you with whatever um, you want to do to move towards this. And then, um, um, Oh yeah, right. So I have hope that if you're leading this, um, that things will actually change. Cause it's funny, you've kind of said throughout how um, stuff that you're working on gets dropped or takes longer. And I'm like, wow, what would happen if things didn't drop <laughs> or take longer? Cause you move pretty quick. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation so much. And um, I knew it was gonna be a really impactful conversation. And yeah, there were some things that you said um, throughout that made me emotional. So I wonder if um, anyone else felt that. Uh, you're very heartfelt and genuine and passionate about um, what you do. And I think you have a very nice approach and hopefully um, people can work with you in our field and not against you as you move forward because you are very open to feedback. So I think, yeah, if people are sort of being catty or whatever, just like take that anger for a moment and like, what are you actually wanting to get out of this? Like, what are your fears or what are your hopes and kind of frame it in that way. And then you can respond in a more um, effective way to move forward. Thank you. Yeah. And that's all. I, oh. I was just going to say, I so appreciate you sharing your time with me today and um allowing me the platform to have this conversation because I think the topics are important. And I, you know, when I get asked to do things, I still kind of sit back and go, well, okay, well, why do you want to talk to me? Cause that seems weird. But um, I so have enjoyed this process of, of 
unpacking with you and um, I'm excited to have you join us on this journey of um, reauthoring the scope of practice and, you know, see where we go. I don't know where it'll be, but I, I hope it's somewhere great. Yeah, this podcast has um, been kind of what I expect, what I hoped and more than I expected. Um, I'm very grateful to have the conversations that I've had. And yeah, you kind of said you didn't know where to find it. You can find it on Spotify or Apple and I'll share the, the link with you after. And I often share um, the podcasts on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, I think and in January, because I'm taking like a month and a bit off of this, I'll be talking with Dr. Tristan Hopper about stuff in Saskatchewan, which I'm really excited about. There's a lot of uh, things to discuss in that area. And um, thank you so much for your time because, um, yeah, we talked quite a bit. Yes. Thank you so much, Mary. I hope you have a great day. Yeah. Enjoy your Saturday. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.